So Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, thank you very much, Rachel, and good morning, everybody. It'd be great to keep that passage open in front of you. And uh, I want to begin by thinking with you that sometimes in life, We fear the wrong things. We fear the wrong things. For example, which of these would you consider more deadly? A great white shark or a vending machine? Well, of course, the shark looks more deadly, doesn't it? It looks more scary, but it might surprise you to learn that globally, more people die each year from vending machines than sharks. Don't quite know how that works, but be wary around wending machines is my advice. Well, which of these sports would you consider more dangerous? Boxing, skydiving, Formula One, or lawn bowls? Well, again, the first three sports appear to be pretty risky, don't they? Getting yourself hit in the head, jumping out of a plane, hurtling around a racetrack, but actually more people globally die playing lawn bowls than the other three sports put together. You can kind of think about the reasons for that over coffee. (laughs) Which of these animals are more deadly? This dangerous spider, this wolf, grizzly bear, or this pretty-looking cow? Well, a sobering fact for those of us who enjoy our country walks is that cows kill far more people than all the others put together. Beware cows and vending machines. Sometimes we fear the wrong things. Now, why am I talking about this? Because I think this is actually the lesson that Jesus wants to teach us from Matthew 16 this morning. He wants to change what we fear. And the fear I'm talking about is the fear, the natural fear, of losing out in this life if we follow Christ. 
I think most of us actually find this quite natural, the fear that if we take Jesus' call to deny ourselves and to follow him to the death with utmost seriousness, if we actually take seriously Jesus' call to live for him with all that we have, we will lose out on life. And we tell ourselves that this wholehearted, totally committed, all-in discipleship cannot be good for us. It cannot lead to our happiness and flourishing. It cannot bring us the life we really want. And so we hold something back from Jesus. We turn ourselves inwards. We protect ourselves like the turtle withdrawing its head. We go into our shell to protect ourselves. And I think this is natural and understandable. But it's wrong. Because look at what Jesus says in verse 25. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. See, as Andy's already reminded us, Jesus is saying something here that is actually quite hard to believe. But we need to believe it. This is not the normal human intuitive way of thinking. He's saying that the way to find life Real life, real joy, real purpose, real satisfaction, real identity, the way to find life is to give it up, to stop looking for it, and to die with him. The way to the good life is to stop thinking about yourself completely, to stop seeking life, to stop hoarding life, to stop preserving life, And give everything you have for Jesus. And it's hard to believe. It's very hard to live like this. It will take a great work of God to convince us that this is true. And why it's hard and why it matters and how God replaces our misplaced fears is what we're going to learn in this passage. You can see a hint of where we're heading with the outlines on the sheet. There is a war of the world, so there is a fight for our life, and there is a victory won at the cross. So let me pray and ask for God's help as we turn to this part of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are the God who reveals, who speaks, and you overturn through your word the lies we choose to believe, And you do this for our good, so that we might find life as we find Christ. We pray that will be our experience this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So verse 21 to 23, the war of the worlds. And we've come to an important turning point in Matthew's gospel. If you just flip over the page and look back at verse 15, and remember that Jesus has just asked the 12 disciples, who do you say I am? And in verse 16, Peter answers on behalf of the group, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And last week we saw that this was a wonderful moment of God-given recognition. They finally come to understand that Jesus is the king, the promised Messiah. And he goes on to explain in verse 18 what he's going to do. He's going to build on that confession of Peter. He's going to build his church And as he's building his church, he's going to defeat his enemies and bring about God's everlasting kingdom. And so at this point, I reckon 
there must have been quite a smile on the disciples' face, faces, don't you think? You know, may, I don't know if they did high fives in first century Jewish society, but you know, maybe there was a few high fives. We've got something right at last. And in response, they've been given this new and thrilling promise that Jesus is going to build his church. He's going to put things right. He is the person they always hoped he was going to be. He is going to establish his kingdom, and they're going to be part of this gathering. How wonderful. But turn over the page in verse 21. Now the disciples get the shock of their lives, and things take this incomprehensible turn. Look at it with me. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now just put yourself in the shoes of the disciples as they receive this bombshell. They've just worked out that Jesus is God's promised king that he is going to overthrow Israel's enemies, that he is going to establish his kingdom, and now he tells them that he himself is going to be overthrown. They thought he was coming to defeat the enemy. He says he's going to be defeated by the enemy. He's going to be rejected, persecuted, humiliated by the very people he came to save. So, verse 22... Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Peter's response is completely natural and understandable, isn't it? How can Jesus become God's king by getting himself killed? It's illogical, isn't it? It doesn't make sense. Later in May this year, we're going to get to witness, most of us on TV, I presume, presumably. I don't know if anyone's got an invitation personally, but most of us are going to witness the coronation of King Charles. And I know he is rethinking some of the traditions, but I imagine it will involve someone putting a crown on his head, not chopping his head off. I imagine it will involve someone handing him a scepter, not stabbing him through the heart with the scepter. But Jesus has just said that his coronation to kingship will involve his execution. That is the shock he's given the disciples. His coronation will be his execution. And no wonder Peter reacts in that way. It is understandable. It is natural. And I think probably even kind and warm-hearted. This shall never happen to you, he says. It's natural. It's understandable. It's kind. It's satanic. Because look at what Jesus says to Peter, verse 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. This is the strongest rebuke anywhere on the lips of Jesus. Get behind me. He's putting Peter right in his place, behind me as a disciple, not in front of me as a teacher. And then he aligns Peter's well-meaning concerns with, not with misplaced zeal or ignorance, but he aligns them with hell. Peter's concern has come straight from hell. That's what he says. Now, what is going on here? What is so bad about what Peter has just said that it deserves this brutal put-down? 
I mean, is this, could this be Jesus just losing it? You know, the, maybe it's just his equivalent of some rude expression. Idiot, get behind me, Satan. Of course not. So let's think carefully about this because actually this expression of Jesus is the key to the whole passage. If we kind of understand this, this little thing, then the rest of the passage is just, just going to open up to us. So let's spend a bit of time thinking about this. What Jesus is doing here is bringing into the light the great sort of spiritual war that is going on in our world that has been going on since the beginning. He's looking at Peter and he's seeing this little kind of moment of the eruption of the spiritual warfare, which, which just quietly works all the time, simmering gently under the surface of human life. But it's always there, this push against the work of the Messiah. He's already alluded to it in the previous passage, hasn't he, when he spoke of the opposition of the church to the gates of Hades. It's that same spiritual war that he's talking about. And now he's saying that that war has just erupted from the mouth of Peter. Peter, who a moment ago was the foundation of the church, he was for Christ. Now he is the Antichrist. He's, he's speaking the words of the Antichrist. And to understand this, we need to trace that spiritual war. We need to trace that thread right back to the beginning. So let's spend a couple of minutes thinking about this. If you know your Bible, you know it began in Genesis 3, which records the way sin entered the world. And the conflict between God and Satan took a particular form in Genesis 3. The conflict between God and Satan took the form of a lie which Satan persuaded the man and woman, which brought them into temptation and sin. In Genesis 2, God has said this on the screen. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Just notice how generous God is there. He gives the man and the woman massive freedom, abundant life in the garden paradise, and one rule to remind them that he is God. Massive freedom. One rule. Nothing to complain about in the Garden of Eden. So how come they sinned? How come they were led to rebel against God? They had everything to live for. They had life in all its fullness. How come they ate from the tree? Well, Satan's lie which tempted the man and the woman, was subtle and clever. He doesn't attack the existence of God or the holiness of God or the power of God. He persuades them to believe that God does not have their best interests at heart. Look at what he says, chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Think about the lie that Satan is trying to hardwire into the heart of the human race. If you eat the fruit, your eyes will be opened, you'll be like God, you'll be better off than you are now, do you see? It's not that you will die by eating the fruit, it's that you will live by eating the fruit you'll become more like God. You'll be able to determine right and wrong. You'll be better off if you eat the fruit. 
And so the lie that Satan is planting into the hearts of the human race is that if you obey God, you will not fully live, you will not flourish, you will not reach your potential. If you live for God, that is not the way to the good life. It is the way to miss out on life. You can't trust God. And so you've got to take your life into your own hands. That's what was happening in Genesis 3. And I think we know, don't we, how deeply that has sunk into our hearts. I know the Bible says I shouldn't sleep with that person I'm not married to. But it will be good. I know I shouldn't spend all this money on myself. I should give it to gospel causes. But it'll be good to spend it on myself. I know the Bible says it's wrong to gossip and complain and wallow, and, but I will feel so much better when I get this off my chest. I know I should go to church this morning to encourage my brothers and sisters, but what I need is to sleep in and get my essay done. I know I ought to stand up for Jesus in that conversation in the workplace, but I just want them to like me. Do you see how it works? We fall for this lie, don't we, over and over again. We fall for these temptations because we fear that obeying God can never bring us happiness, can never bring us life. And Satan has worked this into our hearts because it's so subtle. This is the satanic lie that God doesn't have our best interests at heart. And it's not the great white shark dripping bloody teeth, is it? It's the vending machine standing quietly in the corner. To be in Satan's power is not to be possessed by a demon slathering at the mouth and throwing yourself on the floor. To be in Satan's power is not necessarily to have your life in chaos and dysfunction. To be in Satan's power is just to live the normal, respectable life which puts me first. It's to say with the rest of humanity, the way to the good life is to look after myself, to promote myself, to look after number one. To live, as Martin Luther put it, with that sort of inward curve. It doesn't sound satanic, but it's the heart of evil. Adam fell for the lie in the garden. Israel then fell for the lie in the wilderness, in the moments of tempting and temptation. When they were to trust God, they fell for the lie and failed to trust God. And then back in chapter 4 of Matthew, Satan brought the same temptation to Jesus. If you want, you can turn these stones to bread. If you want, all the kingdom can be yours if you obey me without suffering. And this same lie has now gone into Peter's head. Chapter 16, verse 23. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Can you see what Peter is saying to Jesus? He's saying, if you want to, you can have the kingdom without suffering. And this is the satanic lie. And it's ironic, isn't it? Because last week, Peter was told he was the rock on which he 
would build his church. Now he is the stone that is going to cause Jesus to stumble, the stone in the path. Because he's trying to persuade God's Messiah that he need not come into God's kingdom by fully submitting to God's will. That he needn't be rejected and killed, but instead he can do it the easy way. And this is the war of the worlds. Man and Satan versus God and his Messiah. Do it your way. Do it the easy way. Do it without suffering, without obedience. And later in Matthew's Gospel, we will read in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus grappling with that. Grappling with the choice he faces to do it the easy way or to do it God's way. And thank God that he did it God's way. Because in the next few verses, in chapter 20, he sets his face to Jerusalem, and we read again in more detail. He says, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, and the disciples never hear this bit, he will be raised to life. Jesus will win the war by never falling for Satan's lie. But before that, he calls his disciples to join him. In the midst of the war, there is secondly a fight for your life. In verse 24, Jesus now explains to his disciples that the choice to follow him will therefore involve a choice for them to think the same way. You see the logic? If he is going to resist Satan's lie, then his followers are going to have to do it as well. So verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Notice there are two things the disciple must do. Firstly, you must deny yourself. Now, what is this denial of self? It sounds like a little bit of self-denial, doesn't it? We all know what self-denial is. It's Lent at the moment, isn't it? Had pancakes, and then we sort of do a bit of self-denial. And I guess some Christians will be taking this in the form of denying themselves chocolate or cakes or whatever, a little bit of self-denial. But I don't think that's what Jesus means by self-denial. It's actually giving up chocolates and cakes, I mean... Feel free, you know, I'll I'll eat your chocolate and cakes through Lent if you like. But that can actually be quite sort of focused on the self. What does Jesus mean by self-denial? Well, think about who the self is that we've already seen in the Garden of Eden. The self is the man or woman who says no to God and yes to self. And so to deny yourself is not to deny yourself chocolate in Lent, To deny yourself is to say no to yourself. That is to deny your right to rule your life that we grabbed in the garden. To deny yourself is to make this radical, one-off decision to hand back control of your life to God. And then thousands of daily decisions which follow which put the cause of Christ and the interests of his kingdom and the needs of others before your own. To deny yourself 
is to reverse the turn of your heart to others, to outside, to God. To stretch that inward curve outwards. To deny yourself is actually to stop thinking about yourself completely. But the second thing we do as disciples is to take up your cross. And again, this can sound lighter than it is. Carrying a cross has become an expression in everyday language. You know, sometimes carrying your cross is just putting up with an inconvenience, a noisy neighbor, a car that doesn't start, or to accept some difficult circumstance of life. But Jesus' hearers would not have heard it like that. They would have heard, take up your cross as a call to follow him down the road to Jerusalem to pick up that instrument of execution and stagger outside the city with him as he faces that humiliating death. So to take up your cross is not just to cope with a few hard things, but to identify with Jesus in a world that hates him. That's what it means to take up your cross. To bear with him the humiliation of the cross. In other words, take up your cross is not about your circumstances, but it's about your mindset. To take up your cross is to make that one-off decision to bear the humiliation of the cross with Jesus, to put up with the ultimate inconvenience of losing your life for Jesus, and then thousands of daily little deaths to self that put the interests of others before your own. It is to put that self to death once and for all so that God is now in charge, but it's then thousands of little mini deaths every day, the decisions you make for others, for God, for the gospel. And that's why I began by talking about misplaced fears because this seems so scary, doesn't it? Because what we think of is the loss that following Jesus will involve. Loss of comfort. Loss of sleep. Loss of health, perhaps. Loss of security. Loss of pleasure. Loss of ambition. Loss of status. Loss of respect. Loss of advancement in this world. Loss of relationships. Loss of life. It is very natural to fear this. But look at what Jesus says in verses 25-26. He removes the fear that we will miss out. It's just worth knowing that the word life and soul in the Greek are the same word as the footnote helpfully tells us. So verse 25, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his life? Or what can a man give in exchange for his life? Now, there is a way of reading this that works like a kind of investment plan or cost-benefit analysis. Short-term gain by not dying for Jesus, eternal loss. Short-term loss by dying for Jesus, eternal gain. And that's true. 
There is an investment that will pay off for eternity. There are rewards that will outweigh by far anything we give up now. But that is only half the story. If we read it like that, we might come away from this passage and think, okay, I understand. I've got to work now, reward later. I've got to suffer now, glory later. Death now, life later. Grit your teeth, struggle on under the burden of the cross, and life is just miserable, but it's going to be great in the future. That's how we read it. And there's some truth in that, but not much. Have a look at verse 25. Where Jesus says, and the, 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 the translation here is, is just right. He says, whoever loses his life for me will find it. In other words, the command, take up your cross, it's not a kind of an insurance policy for the future. The command, take up your cross, and the reward, find your life, are two parts of the same coin. Yes, there is a future reward, but if we belong to Christ, if we unite ourselves now to a crucified Christ, if we walk with him in his self-denial, in his war against Satan, then that future reward begins to spill over into life now, and we begin to experience in our lives now what we were created to live for, the life of giving and service that actually makes us like God who gave himself for us. And I think this is what C.S. Lewis meant when he said, to give is to live. Or what Jesus meant when he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. See, in other words, if you live your life now in pursuit of what is best for you, you're not really living it at all. Your inward curve means you're missing out on what life is all about. Your abundance of possessions and achievements that you've said yes to yourself to is just a kind of animal existence. In contrast, the person who puts the service of Christ above all else, who loses out for Christ's sake, devotes all of themselves to others, to God, to the gospel. This person has found life. True purpose, true identity. As we pour ourselves out for God, we become like God who poured himself out for us on the cross. Makes you think, doesn't it? It's crazy. Counterintuitive. A different way of thinking. To give is to live. And so the more we try to preserve and protect ourselves, the more we miss out on life. But the more we give ourselves, the more life we find. And I think most of us know a little bit about this from experience. So let me give you just a, a tiny kind of silly example. You, do you remember when you were little, when you went from loving receiving Christmas presents to actually becoming more excited about giving them. Do you remember that? I don't know how old it was. Maybe, maybe for some it was like 40. Maybe for some it was five, you know. But that, that, that moment when you thought, yeah, I'm really, I'm really excited about opening my presents, but, but I've got this present from, you know, W.H. Smith that I've been saving my pocket money up, and I'm, I'm gonna, my mum is going to be so excited when, when she opens it. And you, you realize that actually you're more excited about giving than about receiving. 
just a little example. It's part of the way God has made us. Or let me give you another example. We've all had this experience as well, haven't we? Two contrasting days. One day, you put the snooze button on a few too many times. You fritter away time on the internet, watching stupid YouTube videos of sharks and vending machines. You have an appointment with your friend to read the Bible, but you, something comes up and you, you cancel the appointment, you take the easy way. And so the day goes on and it's Bible study in the evening or campus Bible talk or something and you, you just you don't go, it's just not convenient. And throughout the day, you, you just said yes to self a few too many times. And how do you feel when you get to bed? Well, you should feel great, shouldn't you? Satan would think you should feel great because saying yes to self is a good idea. But actually, how do you really feel? You feel miserable, don't you? Don't you feel miserable after a day like that? And contrast this with a day when you get up early, you keep your commitments, you stumble across a friend who needs some help, and so you, you give up your plans to help them. You go to the Bible study, you go to campus Bible talk, whatever it means, even though it means you're behind on your schedule and you don't get through your to-do list and you're going to get to bed late and therefore you're going to be tired the next day and so it goes on. How do you feel at the end of that day? Well, Satan would say, well, you should feel lousy because you just said no to self, no to self, no to self. You've done nothing for you. But weirdly, you feel great, don't you? And you might say, well, that's, just, that's self-righteousness. No. It might be a little bit of self-righteousness, but actually it's because you're wired to be a giver. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And if you're following Jesus, you've been, you've been rewired. You've been reprogrammed to actually live as God created you to live. This is why giving, and, and uh, I'm talking about financial giving, Giving our time, giving our energy is so important for us as Christians. In Acts 20, 35, Jesus says it is more blessed to give than to receive. And I think you can spend a whole lifetime working out what he means about that. I think as a church, we've proved this over the years. You can see people have given money and career advancement. They've given up home ownership or home improvement or holidays or comforts or getting that bigger car. Whatever it was they wanted, they've given it up. And done it with a massive smile on their face. And it's spiritual warfare. It's an attack on Satan. It's the victorious Christian life. Because Satan says the way to happiness is to hoard and protect. And we say no. And so as we give whatever it is, time, money, energy, skills, personality... As you, as you give to gospel causes, it's an attack on Satan. Well, let me give you another way of applying this that some people have found helpful that I used at NYC. Just think about the way you walk into a room. See, we're all going to be walking into rooms this week. Oh, it might be a kitchen, it might be a classroom, a boardroom, a staff room, a lecture theater, a living room, a warehouse, a sports club, a meeting room. Just think about the rooms you will walk into this week. And there's a very simple question in this exercise. Are you going to live for self in that room or are you going to live for other people? 
when you walk into them and see who's there, are you going to be thinking about how I can impress them? Getting their attention, getting something out of them, having the kind of conversations will, will increase your status. Are there somebodies in that room that you want to prioritize over the nobodies? Will your conversations, your behavior in that room be for your own advancement or the advancement of the kingdom? For your own good or the good of others? How are you going to carry your cross into the rooms you enter this week? And these questions apply to us as a church as well, don't they? Coming up to our vision day next week, hope everyone's going to be there. And our question for us is, are our hearts and our agendas, our budgets, our plans, aimed at others, at the advancement of the kingdom, or at ourselves? Are we going to care more about welcoming newcomers and reaching the unreached than our own comfort? Are we going to be so caught up with our own problems and challenges? Or are we going to keep our eye on the mission of Jesus? See, whether it's for you as an individual or us as a church, this is a very important question because if we focus on ourselves, we collapse in oblivion. But by focusing on others, we live. Well, let me give you a personal example as well. I don't mind telling you that Emma and I and a few others in church, a few of the elders and the staff team, we've had a very difficult few months, and it's not because of the building project. In fact, the other day, we were lying awake at night, and I was worrying about this thing, and it, this kind of pastoral issue that we're, some of us are dealing with, or several issues. I was thinking, uh, there's something else I should be worrying about. Oh, it's the building. That was it. It's been a hard few weeks, actually. Hard few months. So hard that one of the staff actually said, are we, are we doing something wrong? And you'd be surprised how often it goes through the minds of pastors and those who work in full-time ministry, how often it goes through our minds actually to think, could we be doing something a bit different? Could we be doing something easier? And I said to Emma during the week, I'm not sure I can do this for the rest of my life. It's hard. And you'll have your own example of this. You'll have your own version of this, I'm sure, these hard seasons. But let me quote from a card someone wrote to encourage us. Listen to this. You are not in the wrong life. There is no other route to life than to take up your cross every day. Isn't that brilliant wisdom? Isn't that helpful? Because when the hard things come, whether it's a hard circumstance, something that has just been inflicted on you, whether it's the result of ministry and mission and speaking out for Jesus and the world is just attacking you, we can find ourselves thinking, we must be doing something wrong. This can't be right. I want to jump onto another track and just have an easier time. And how helpful and wise to think you are not in the wrong life. 
And I think although picking up your cross is suffering for Jesus as you make his kingdom purposes your priority, I think that's what it is. Picking up your cross, in other words, is not any suffering. It's, it's your suffering as you walk with Jesus. I think it does apply to any suffering. Because as we suffer in this world, we can suffer with him or without him. We can curve inwards in our suffering or we can curve outwards in our suffering. And I want you to tell yourself, you are not in the wrong life. hope that's helpful. But there is a problem. As we read Matthew's gospel, there is a complication we need to confront. So I don't know if you've ever noticed, but Jesus calls his followers to deny themselves and take up their cross. But do they? Does anybody actually take up their cross? Well, in Matthew's gospel, we see the disciples hear this call. And then by chapter 18, what are they doing? They're arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom. In chapter 19, they are shooing away the little children who come to Jesus. In chapter 20, James and John's mum comes to ask them, Jesus, can my two sons sit at your right and your left in your kingdom? And in chapter 26, while Peter strenuously insists that he follows Jesus to the end, before the cock crows, he's denied him three times. They don't take up their cross. Over and over again, they fall for Satan's lie. So that by the end of the gospel, Jesus dies alone. And it turns out there is only one man on earth, only one Israelite who has ever truly rejected the lie of Satan, truly said yes to God and no to self, and that is Jesus Christ. In fact, in the whole of the New Testament, there's only one other person I can think of who does carry their cross, and that is Simon of Cyrene, who is forced to carry the crossbar to the place of execution. No one does it. No one picks up their cross. Each and every one of them runs, flees, denies, lives themselves. And so how do you get to be someone who lives this way? Where is the great miracle that Andy spoke of before? Well, thirdly, and in conclusion, the victory of the cross. Verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. There is a way of reading verse 27 which misses the context. Bible skills people take note. And makes an enormous assumption that the coming of Jesus being referred to here is his second coming at the end of the age. But that makes no sense of verse 28, does it? I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not take, taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. How can verse 27 be talking about Jesus coming in his return and verse 28 talking about him coming in the lives of those standing there? Did he get the timing wrong? Did he think he was coming back sooner? Or maybe Matthew got it wrong? No, we've got to rethink this. Jesus comes to his kingdom on the cross. As the guys on the video said, the whole center and climax of the Bible is the cross. 
The resurrection will follow, attended by angels, his ascension, the sending of the Spirit and the worldwide mission. But it's the coming of the glory of God on the cross that he is talking of. And that's the moment where Satan's power is defeated. That is where the forgiveness of our self-orientated lives is bought. That is where God demonstrates that we can trust him with our very lives. Because on the cross, God gives himself to us, and in that self-giving, we learn the pattern of life. That's where we learn that to give is to live. And that is where we finally are freed from fear so we can live for him. So this is why after the Gospels, no one is told to take up their cross again. It isn't the language of the New Testament, take up your cross. Instead, Galatians 2.20, for example, we are told, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In other words, the command to take up your cross becomes a reality, and you can look at the other examples I put on the bottom of the sheet. If you are united to Christ by the Spirit, you don't have to pick up your cross and grit your teeth and struggle. You get to die with Christ because you have died with him. You have been freed from Satan's lie that God does not have your best interests at heart. You have been released from the power of Satan. You are freed at last from the fear that if you give yourself to Christ, you miss out on life. And what this means is that when things are hard, or when you have to make that decision, is it me or God? You look at the cross, and you know that you're not on the wrong life. God has given you power to say no to Satan and to say yes to him. And if you don't believe this, well, ask an older Christian. Find someone in church who's been around. Ask them about the sacrifices they've made, the way they've given themselves to the gospel, the decisions they've made that have meant they've lost out in this world. Ask them, if you had your time again, would you do it differently? And I promise you they'll say no. Because this loss was life. I recently came across the story of William Borden, 19th century American missionary. He's from a very wealthy family, a very, very wealthy family. He made millions from silver mining in Colorado. And as a teenager, he became a convinced Christian, and he decided to give away his immense inheritance. And he signed up to go onto the mission field. His aim was to become a missionary to the Uyghur Christ, uh, Muslims in northwest China. And so he spent years preparing. He studied Islam. He learned Arabic. He went to live with a Syrian family for a few years so he would hear Arabic spoken. He became as good as a native speaker. He equipped himself with theology, with a knowledge of the place, with a knowledge of the language. And he was almost ready to go onto the mission field. And in the course of the last few months of training, he contracted cerebral meningitis. And three weeks later, just as he was about to embark on a life of mission, age 25, he died. And we might think, what a waste. What was God thinking? Here was someone who had believed God, not Satan. Satan. 
But do you see? He'd found life. He'd found his life, not lost it. And on a piece of paper found in his bedroom, he'd simply written, no reserve, no retreat, no regret. Well, let's pray. This will be our story too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your forgiveness for our inward curve, for finding it so easy to say yes to self and no to Christ. Thank you that Jesus gave himself on the cross in order to rescue us from Satan's power so that we might give ourselves to you and truly find life. Please help us not to fear, but to know the joy of giving ourselves and taking up our cross as we follow Christ, who gave himself for us. Amen.